Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. How you living? How was your weekend? Was it good? Was it great? Was it the best weekend you've ever had? I really hope it was. But even if it was your weekend of a lifetime, I guarantee it was still not half the weekend that Fernando Tatis Jr. just had. Padres, Dodgers. It played seven games already this season, and I've seen all I need to see to know that I need a lot more. 19 of these are not going to be nearly enough. I need more. In fact, why don't we just tell everybody else in Major League Baseball, y'all can do whatever the hell you want to do because we all just want to see the Dodgers and the Padres beat the crap out of each other 162 times. Just wipe the schedule, let these two give each other the hands for 162. Let these two rake, cheat, allegedly, hit bombs, style those bombs, and talk bleep to each other on the field and then on social media every single night. Do that, and I'm good. The other 28 teams in baseball can just go off to the side, play amongst themselves, and leave the big dogs to drive back and forth on the five, beating the hell out of each other. Because right now in baseball, for heat and juice, it is the Padres, Dodgers, and everybody else. In fact, right now in team sports, it's Padres, Dodgers, and everybody else. Nothing else is close right now. I mean, this rivalry is so good. It is so legit, it could single-handedly make baseball relevant once again. That rivalry alone could save the sport. You don't believe me? Check the first series of the year, which had extra innings, dugouts being emptied, bull bleep swings, an incredible game-winning catch, and lots of junk talking. Like, it was so good. There was no way that rematch was going to be as good. But then it was. And that was pretty much all due to one dude, one singular freak of nature, Fernando Tatis Jr. El Nino touched down in Dodger Stadium, and he lit that joint up on Friday. It was lit. He comes in Friday in the top of the third in a tie game, and he broke that tie in a hurry. One out in the third. Fernando Tatis Jr., welcome to Dodger Stadium. Out of the yard to the pavilion to put the Padres on top 2-1. to one. Third home run of the year, second home run given up by Kershaw tonight. First Myers, more recently Fernando. Oh, and Kershaw, look at this reaction. He knew it. There was no doubt about that one. Everybody in the ballpark knew it. One pitch, bomb. He saw that 90-mile-per-hour fastball. He turned it around at 113.4 MPH. And then he did it again in the fifth. And I'm not sure what was better, the blast itself or the trip around the bases. In the air to deep left field, down the line towards the corner. It is gone! A home run! Fernando's gone deep again in L.A. Fernando Tatis Jr. homered off Kershaw in the third. He repeats the act in the fifth. Oh, yeah, stutter step around third. There's something about this anniversary, about his dad hitting two grand slams in one inning, and Fernando going deep for the second time. No doubter, he is crushing tonight. No doubter is right. Having an exit velo of 115.9 is great. 
taking a trip around the bases that could be timed with a sundial is even better. Like, there have been guys who stutter step during home run trots, but I can't remember the last time somebody did a stutter step that was practically rocking back and nearly taking a few steps backwards before rounding third. Like, that is practically some Jeffrey Leonard flap down bleep right there. And you know that's my favorite trot of all time. Two homers in the same game. And he did it on the 22nd anniversary of Fernando Tatis Sr. going absolute legend with a pair of grand slams in the same inning off Chanho Park. El Nino did not quite outdo Pops on Friday, but it was pretty damn good. And if that's all he did during the series, that would have been amazing. But it wasn't. He comes back on Saturday and was even better in terms of action and spice and juice. Because Saturday, he let off the game against Trevor Bauer. He took a strike, and then on the second pitch, he did this. Fernando with the two home runs last night, now four on the year. And this one is in the air to deep left field. Back goes A.J. Pollock. He is at the wall. And Uh Fernando has left the building again. Uh Fernando Tatis Jr. with two last night. Leads off game three tonight with another home run. You cannot do it any better than he is doing it right now. Man, this dude is so electric. That home run was great. The trip, though, again, around the bases, even better. Because on his way to second base, if you saw that video, he turned back to the Padres dugout. And he covered his eye, mocking Bauer pitching to the Padres with one eye closed in spring training. And he still wasn't done. He let off the top of the sixth against Bauer again. And this time both guys battle. Tatis falls behind 0-1, then 1-2. Then he gets to a full count. He fouls off the next pitch to stay alive. And then he went yard again. Two pitch again to Fernando Tatis Jr. There's a fly ball headed towards deep left center field. Back goes DJ Peters at the wall. Nando's left the building again. Second home run of the night for Fernando Tatis Jr. Two last night, two tonight. This time, he breaks out the Conor McGregor billionaire strut after he crosses home plate. I mean, hell yes. That is the best, the absolute best. Normally, a guy does something like that. The opposing pitcher gets a red ass. The next batter gets one in his ear or he's eating through a straw, but not Bauer. Bauer, as we know, is a really different dude. Bauer says, I'm actually good with it. I like it. I think that pitchers who have that done to them and react by throwing at people or, you know, getting upset and hitting people or whatever, I think uh, think it's pretty soft. If you give up a homer, a guy should celebrate it. You know, it's hard to hit in the big leagues. So I'm all for it, and I think it's, it's important that, you know, the game moves in that direction, and we stop throwing at people because they celebrated having some success on the field. Hey, listen, I've been saying that now for the last couple of years. I love that reaction. That is absolutely the right take. You throw at somebody because you screwed up, and you gave up a bomb. I mean, that's not tough. That's not hard. That's soft. That's the opposite of tough. That's horse bleep is what that is. Hitting a home run is hard. Guys should get fired up. And Tatis was. As he said after the game, it was, quote, payback time. He also added this. It's just fun. It's just fun. You know, when you know you're facing a guy like that, uh, you know, he's, he's doing his stuff. He has, he's, having a, he's having fun on the mound. And, uh, you know, when you get him, you get him. And, uh, you know, you celebrate too. You know, he's, uh, he's a hard guy to deal with. All right, so I like this. I like both their reactions. And then... 
they took the heat to Twitter because Bauer retweeted a video posted by somebody of Tatis at the at-bat with the caption, quote, am I crazy or like, did Fernando Tatis Jr. know what was coming? Let me know. Well, Bauer saw that, and then he had a message with that video, which was, quote, if you need to know what pitch is coming that badly, just ask Daddy nicely next time. You know I ain't scared, homie, end quote. All right, now we got something. There was no way that Tatis was not going to respond to that, right? So he did, with a Photoshop of him holding a baby with Trevor Bauer's face and the caption, Tranquilo hijo, or quote, calm down, son. Man, again, I cannot stress how awesome this all is. Two great teams who obviously hate each other, battling their asses off on the field, talking junk during games and after it, and mocking and clowning each other on Twitter. It's so good. It is the best thing that could happen to Major League Baseball. This is why I'm saying this should just be a freeway series from now until the end of the season. Scrap the rest of the games. Just keep running it back. And it's not over. Because before yesterday's game, and yes, there is more, even Dave Roberts, classiest guy ever, talked about the notion of Fernando looking back and peaking. You know, when you talk about peaking, um, that's that's uh, just not the way you play baseball. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for Fernando as a ball player. But, you know, if that is the case, which I don't know, that'll be noted. Quote, that'll be noted. And my man's not talking about having his catchers change their signs. Also, this obviously worked its way back to Bauer. And old Trev was not that happy about it either. That's the type of stuff that would get you hit in other games. Now, I'm mild-mannered about it. Flip the bat and do all that stuff, fine. If you're going to look at the signs, not okay. And if you do it again, like the team that you're playing probably ain't going to take too kindly to it. And there might have to be some on-field stuff. I'm telling you, man, baseball code. Yeah, this is something else also that, you know, way, way, way back in the day, I kind of understood the code as much as somebody who never played the game at a high level could understand the code. And then I got sick of the code the last couple of years. But <laughs> every once in a while, the baseball code does make me laugh. Like Bowers there on record saying, hey, man, if you want to flip the bat, that's great. If you want to admire your work, that's great. I don't care about any of that. Uh, don't be peeking at the catcher, though. You know, that's what they're saying for the most part. I really am over the code. But in this case, what they're saying is, the code says, if you can pick signs, fine. But there's a right way of doing it and a wrong way of doing it, an accepted way of stealing signs and a way of stealing signs that might have you wearing one in the end and peeking back to look at the catcher is the wrong way. We're not okay with that. And if we catch you doing that, then we're going to go baseball vigilante on your ass and take matters into my own hands. And that's an all-time great guy in Dave Roberts who pretty much just said that. Now, personally, again, I'm not a fan of settling things by throwing a hard rock at each other in triple digits. So I'm not going to really condone that. But I am going to stress that I need this series to continue on a daily basis. Because the Sunday finale, I'm not even done yet. The Sunday finale may have been even better than the three that came before it. L.A. jumps out to a 2-0 lead. Then guess who comes up at the top of the fourth? If you think you're going to get away with looking at signs, no Did he get another one? Did he get another one? Yes, he 
Oh, man. This dude is unbelievable. Uh, no peaky that time. I mean, you want to talk about a prime time player. You cannot take your eyes off him. You can't stop talking about him. Baseball royalty, 98, in on his hands and just explodes. It's all true, man. It's all true. Like, they can't keep that guy in that yard. That is a spacious yard. That is a pitcher's yard. And that's a stacked rotation in that pitcher's yard. And they can't keep this guy in the house. But it seemed like that was not going to matter because the Padres fell behind 7-1. Now, I'm not going to say that game was over at 7-1, but given the teams that entered the seventh inning down by six runs, had a record of 113,547. <laughs> they had 100 wins and 13,547 losses over the past 50 years. Pretty good stat. Yeah, that game was over. Pretty hard to get jacked up about a .007 winning percentage in situations like that, especially against the defending champs in their house. Yet the Padres scored two in the seventh, two in the eighth, two in the ninth. They tie it up. And then in the 11th, guess who would start the inning on second base and steal third? El Nino. Then the kid comes home with the go-ahead run on this. Jake Cronenworth on deck behind Hosmer. Come after him, and Hosmer swings and sends a drive to center field. Peters is back on it, measuring it off. Tatis will score easily, and it's 8-7 San Diego. Hey, Padre fan, why are my phone lines not completely jacked and filled with you before the end of the opening segment? 1-800-636-8686. I know you're feeling it. Down 7-1, and coming back to win 8-7. It's a hell of a comeback. Eric Hosmer said that that was not just a win, that that was something way more than a win. I think we certainly made a statement. The whole baseball world was watching these games, was locked into our series, and I think they know that we can compete with these guys. And that's basically the statement that we made, that uh, we're going to fight these guys till the end. And uh, we respect what they've done. We respect who they are, but we're certainly not going to back down from them. I love that. You may think. You may think that I'm, quote, Dodger Jim. I'm not. I've got no rooting interest. Again, Geographically speaking, I am right in the middle of these two towns. I'm right in the middle, literally, equidistant. I don't give a damn. I like them both a lot. I respect them both. And I agree with Hosmer. Damn right that was a statement to win. Coming back from the dead like that is massive. Doing it in a situation like that is even bigger. I know it's only April, but they had to have that. The Padres had to have that. If you're going to be serious about competing with the Dodgers, you can't win the first two games of that series, then drop the last two. You can't watch them go to 10 games over 500 while you drop to 500. It is April, but you can't let that happen. San Diego had to have it, and they got it. Don't look now, but it's the first week in May. You know what that means. Kentucky Derby, baby. Check it out, clones. Jeff and Seabus is calling for a 20-way photo finish tie in the run for the Roses. You heard it. The entire field of 20 thoroughbreds will cross the finish line at the exact same time. Yeah, no, they won't. You know better, clones. Do not bet on Jeff and Seabus. Instead, check out my friends at americasbestracing.net. Get the latest and greatest. Make a winning bet on the first Saturday in May. Visit americasbestracing.net today. Seth Wickersham is my guest. Hey, Seth, always good to have you on the show. How are you? I'm great, Jim. How are you doing? Good, good. Good to visit with you. You've got a great piece up, Seth, on ESPN Plus right now about... 
It opens up with the scene after San Francisco lost to Kansas City in that Super Bowl. Let me start right there. What was it about those moments and about Mike Shanahan and Kyle Shanahan in those moments that resonated with you the most? Well, I think it was one of those moments that resonated in retrospect, right? At the at the time, obviously, like Kyle had been on a team that had lost a close Super Bowl for the second time in, in four years. Um, you know, in retrospect, though, when you think about it, it was really interesting because, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo had outplayed Patrick Mahomes for most of that game, then didn't finish as strong in the fourth quarter. Some of it was bad, uh, a couple bad throws. Some of it was kind of bad luck. And, you know... If you look at where the 49ers are now and what they traded to move up to number three, I traced a lot of it back to that game and the fact that, you know, Kyle and Mike Shanahan are are different men, you you know, they're different coaches, but they have share a similar ambition, and that is to be great. And there is a difference between the very, very good quarterbacks that we've talked about and the immortal ones. And I just saw a connection between that moment and then moving up in the draft that um, that kind of clicked for me. Seth Wickersham is joining us. So, Seth, what I'm hearing from you, and this is true, right, the line between being really good and iconic or legendary is so, so thin. Let me ask you this. As you point out, when Kyle met with the media after the trade, he said, quote, there is a risk any season you go into without a top-five QB. What do you make of that statement? Well, I thought that was a very revealing statement. I thought that it revealed, number one, what they're trying to get, right, when they move up to the number three spot, to have the pick of, you know, the third best quarterback. And it was also a declaration that Jimmy Garoppolo is not that guy, and they don't think he's going to be that guy. And um, so, you know, that's what stood out to me, um, you know, about that. It was a very, very candid moment from Kyle, and he said it so quickly that I think a lot of people missed it. We're talking to Seth Wickersham. Seth, when they made that deal, do you think that Kyle Shanahan knew who he wanted at that spot, or do you think that he just made that deal knowing that whoever we get, we're going to be able to develop and we'll be fine with, and it will be better than what we currently have? I think he knew, or at least had a very, very strong sense, and I I think that that'll be Mac Jones. That said, I think that he's also, you know, has to have that tested against, you know, the other available candidates. Um, But you know, they gave up a lot to move to that number three spot. I mean, usually you see that type of trade to move up to the number one pick or the number two pick. Now that we know that both of those picks are going to be quarterbacks, again, he moved up all that way to get the third. You just have a choice of the third best guy. And um, I, I would be shocked if he did that and didn't, you know, what wasn't, you know, very certain about who he wanted um in that opportunity. And obviously he must feel very strong about that, that quarterback maybe even thinks that they're better than, um, you know, than Zach Wilson might be, for instance. It seems to me like Seth, I'm blown away by the boldness of that move. I think it's an incredible swing for them to take and it better work out, but it goes to speak to the confidence of the Shanahan's and I say Shanahan's plural. What do you make of the the dynamic between Mike and Kyle and how involved is Mike in this process right now? I think he's very involved. I mean, he's one of the best quarterback evaluators on the planet and very few people can do that. And so I think that his voice and his opinion matters a lot. And, you know, if you look at Mike Shanahan's career after John Elway retired, he was kind of a part of that school thought that, like, look, I can get a good quarterback 
and coach them up and surround them with a good team and maybe win a Super Bowl. That was kind of their plan. They did it with Brian Greasy. They did it with Jay Plummer. And, you know, Mike Shanahan was a brilliant offensive mind. I mean, the, the New England Patriots always talked about, the coaches always said that he was the toughest guy to prepare for, and he was 5-3 and three in Denver against Bill Belichick's Patriots. But there's a limit to that mentality. And you saw, like, Jake Plummer in 2005 throws four interceptions in the AFC Championship game. The next year, Mike decides to draft uh, Jay Cutler. And I saw, like, a parallel between what Kyle is doing. I mean, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo is a different player than Jake Plummer was, but he struggled to stay healthy. And, you know, he didn't finish strong in the Super Bowl. And I think that it was kind of a concession that, like, as confident as the Shanahan's are in their ability to coach up a quarterback, they realize, like Kyle said, any time you go into a season without a top-five guy, it's a risk. And I think that that's why this risk, moving up to the number three spot, made sense for them. You know, to that point, though, Seth, like, for instance, you look at Carson Wentz, and I'm sure Philadelphia felt that way about him. You look at Jared Goff, I'm sure the Rams felt that way about him. So how likely is it that the person they pick at number three will, in fact, be a success? And certainly enough to justify that pick, that trade. That is the big question, right? Because, I mean, odds are, if there's five quarterbacks taken in the first round, and most people think that there will be, you know, odds are that four of them really won't pan out to even be you know, Pro Bowl-level players to say nothing of future Hall of Famers, a true franchise quarterback. And, you know, I think that that's where Kyle Shanahan's, you know, talent and, and self-belief kind of comes into play. I mean, I think he's saying, like, look, whoever I pick at number three, I think I can get them to that level. And if I can't, or I think I can get them to that level, and maybe I'm willing to risk my, my career in San Francisco to do that. Um you know, I think that that's what it said, and I it it's a big like you said it was a it was a monumental trade, and it really did reveal a lot about you know the way that they think and the way that they view these quarterbacks. Seth Wickersham joins me for another moment or so. In the event that that does not work out, yeah, it might not work out for him, but he'll probably land on his feet someplace else. Where would that lead that franchise though if he makes that deal and it does not work out and they don't get the guy? Yeah, I mean, if they're where Philadelphia is or, you know, L.A. is, where they're trading those guys that they traded up for. I mean, obviously that's a, you know, it's a very expensive lost bet. But, you know, it appears that that's what they're willing to do here. Um, You know, having had Jimmy Garoppolo for a couple years now, having watched him play. And, I mean, you know, the guy's a really good player. He made some great throws that season that they went to the Super Bowl, some game-changing throws. And, you know, the problem is just that, A, he hasn't been able to stay healthy, and, B, you know, despite playing Patrick Mahomes for most of that game, he faded a little bit down the stretch while Patrick Mahomes obviously came into his own and proved that you know he's the best young quarterback we've seen in a generation. So, Seth, i got about 90 seconds. I want to ask you this. Back in 2010, you wrote a great piece about NFL war rooms. What is the role of head coaches in most war rooms? Yeah, thanks, man. That, it, it depends on the team, obviously. But, you know, the, the, the piece was about how politics plays a role in the war room and how – you know, sometimes the coaches are almost kind of like secondary actors, supporting actors in the process of putting together a draft board. Um, in other places like New England, for instance, sometimes scouts feel like that they just give information and they have no say on who's picked and, you know, where, where various players are ranked. And so it really depends on the team. But 
it is one of those interesting things, especially when there's a little bit of tension between the head coach and the GM. The GM really takes over the draft, viewing it as that's their thing to get done each year, and the head coach kind of takes on a secondary role. Um, and, you know, that to me is very revealing, especially when we talk about a lot of these franchises where the head coach and the GM just never get on the same page. When you call a Dell Technologies advisor, you are talking to somebody who is not waiting for their turn to speak. No, they actually want to hear what you have to say. They're focused on you, ready to give advice on everything from laptops to the cloud and offer tailored solutions powered by Intel vPro platform to keep your small business ready for what's next. Our advisors listen so you know your small business needs have been heard. Call a Dell Technologies advisor today at 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877- Seven seven, ask Dell. He is Kevin Ioli. Kevin, good to have you back. How are you? I'm good, Jim. What a show that was, wasn't it? Oh man, wild, Kevin. Really a wild, wild night. There's so much to talk about regarding UFC 261. But let me start with Chris Weidman. You know that pretty much anything can happen in that sport, and you've seen everything happen in that sport. But I've got to ask, what was your reaction when you saw his leg snap the way it did as early as it did against Uriah Hall? Obviously, it's sickening to see that, but it really, I, my heart just went out to Chris. I mean, I know what he's been through in his career and what he's trying to do, trying to get back to the championship level. And to see that, you know, after all the hard work he did, 17 seconds into the fight, to have that kind of injury, which uh, he provided an update today from his hospital bed where he said, you know, six months to a year before he can get back. I mean, that could, you know, absolutely be career crushing for him. And so you just had to feel horrible personally for Chris more than anything else. I agree with that. You know, and also, Kevin, when you look at that, how much is that injury to Weidman a reminder of the stakes for every single fighter, every single time they step into the cage? And that really, I mean, that's something I think a lot of fans either don't know, don't think about, or forget. But the stakes that are they're up against or how high they are every single time one of these guys steps in. It's no exaggeration to say they're risking their lives. You know, I, I have covered the fights for so long that in boxing, I have sat ringside for seven fighters who passed away as a result of injuries in the ring, including one who fell through the ropes and fell right on top of me. And so I think I know as well as anybody what, what these men and women, you know, risk in order to pursue their dream of, of a championship and making a better life for themselves and their families. And uh, I think, you know, that's why when referees stop fights too soon, you know, you might say, hey, I didn't agree with the stoppage. But you understand why they're doing it because, you, you know, you know what these uh, men and women are risking in there. And so you have to just have some understanding to say, you know what, uh, I may disagree with the exact time that fight was stopped but I understand why it was stopped in that regard. Right. That was catastrophic. But there were three championship fights that were amazing on that fight card. Kevin, I always joining us. You spoke with Bullet Valentina Shevchenko in the buildup to this weekend. You introduced her as one of the greatest fighters that you have ever seen in your life. It's really high praise, but deservedly so. I know that's not something you throw around lightly. What did you see from her before UFC 261 that made you feel that way? Well, you just look at, you know, how she has dominated great fighters. I mean, she was uh, had a dominant win at an upper weight class over Holly Holm, uh, of the champion that beat Ronda Rousey. I mean, she just dominates Holly Holm. She, she was very good at 135. She fights Amanda Nunes twice, and Amanda is widely regarded as the greatest ever. And Valentina could have won both of those fights, especially the second fight in Edmonton that went to a split decision. Easily could have gone Valentina's way. 
And then there's no weakness in her game. She can do everything. And I think one of the things you saw out of her, you know, you saw her competitive side came out. Jessica Andrade talked a little bit before the fight. And Andrade said, I don't think Valentina has good wrestling. So what did Valentina do? She went out there and wrestled and was 7 for 7 in takedowns. And I think she told uh, Jessica Andrade, you think I have a weakness? Okay, well, we'll see if I have a weakness. And it was Andrade whose wrestling was a weakness, not uh, Valentina's. Valentina is just such a great... Uh, and smart martial artist. She, she's well-rounded. There's nothing she doesn't do extraordinarily well. And, uh, and she just has a great temperament for the game as well. And she made that very clear, Kevin, after the fight, right? When she said, I don't have a weakness. You're all looking for my weakness. There are no weaknesses. And the seven takedowns I thought were amazing. She had a great, great showing. Then after that, you had Thug Rose also with an enormous showing. Wow. What do you make of her mindset going to that fight? I mean, it was, it's almost comical when you watch her and Pat Barry there, you know, you're the best, I'm the best. And the way it was like he was trying to hypnotize her before the fight. But, you know, it works for her. And she, you know, Rose is, is different than a lot of other people. And she really trains her mind as much as she trains her body uh, for these fights. And, you know, like I honestly will say, like I knew uh, Rose was good enough to win the fight, but I didn't give her a lot of chance in the fight because I thought Wiley is just, it's such another level. And the kind of fighters that Rose historically, has had difficulty with her been the women who are strong, physical, and that certainly was, was Wiley. And so I, I felt like Wiley would be able to handle her. But, you know, Rose, um, obviously well-coached. They looked and they saw a weakness in her game, and, and Rose was able to exploit it. Um, and, it and it was remarkable. I mean, you know, what a, a precision kick that she threw. And, uh, and then she finished it on the ground very quickly. I know some people might want to say, including Wiley, that it was a quick stoppage. But you know, I, I don't think you can argue with that. You know, she went down, hit her head on the canvas. Uh, Rose landed three good uh, hammer fists. Uh, you know, that that's about time when, when there are clean shots like that that the referee needs to be waving it off, and I thought did correctly in that instance. I agree. Kevin Ioli is my guest. I agree with you. Wiley, I, I understand why somebody as good and as proud as she is thought that was premature, but I'm not going to argue against that. I think that the referee got that one right, and that kick was absolutely legendary. So where does that leave Rose? Where does she go from here? You know, I think she's going to rematch Wiley. I think, you know, it's kind of like Conor McGregor from this standpoint. Wiley has that huge fan base in China. And uh, there's no other clear-cut person in that division where you say, this person has to be the next title shot. That person doesn't exist right now. There's a lot of good fighters that you could make an argument for. You know, one, the one I would make an argument for if it wasn't a rematch would be Mackenzie Dern. But you, when you sit there and you look at it and you say, Wiley got caught with one shot, uh, in early in a fight, you know, she's had a good championship run. You know, she's been uh, an amazing champion, and she's probably the best fighter in that division other than the champion. I think, you know, then you add on to that that she has that huge fan base and the, the inroads that she's helping the UFC make in, in the uh, Chinese and Asian marketplace. Uh, I don't think there's any question they're going to go with a rematch. And you saw a little bit of evidence of how big you know, MMA is becoming in China. There was four Chinese fighters on that card on Saturday, and those other three were specifically on there because they knew they'd have a big audience watching Wiley. Kevin Ioli is joining us. I'd watch that again. In fact, I'd like to see that again. For the point you just made, she got caught a really good shot early in the fight, and everybody in that sport loses, as we know, except 
Maybe Usman. Maybe yeah. Usman has won 14 straight in the UFC and 18 straight overall. Kevin, go back. Like, the final fight of the night was so great. But if we go back to the first meeting, Usman didn't just win a unanimous decision. He won 14 of the 15 rounds as scored by the judges. That said, not everybody was so impressed. What was the consensus or the general thinking about Usman coming out of that fight? Well, I think coming out of the first fight, you know, there were he still didn't convince everybody. You know, there were there were some people that weren't sure his striking was you know was up to the level that he could go out there and face a guy with hands like Masvidal when Masvidal was ready to fight. And I think people looked at him and said, "Yeah, he's a great wrestler," but and they looked at who he had fought um, subsequently, and, and I, I found it laughable. But you know, they said, "Well, we fought Colby Covington, a wrestler. He won the title from Tyron Woodley, a wrestler. You know, he built he beat Gilbert Burns." Um, uh, a jiu-jitsu guy, you know, that that's cutting those people short. Those are the best welterweights in the world, and and he's, you know, really beating them handily. And, and you go back, and you even go back to the Demi Amaya fight, and it's Demi Amaya, Rafael Dos Anjos, uh, Covington, uh, uh, Woodley, Burns, and Masvidal twice. I mean, what more does this guy have to do to get recognition from the crowd? I mean, I think he's, you know, it, I, I wrote one time before the fight, you know, it's kind of been heresy to say anybody's better than GSP in the welterweight division, but I certainly think you can make an argument for uh, Usman now, and if, if you can't say it definitively now, I'll tell you, one or two more big wins like he's had, and you're going to have to say it because what he is doing is remarkable. Right, Kevin, stay on that point for a minute. Who would you take in their primes, GSP or Usman? You know, I th- I think that's a tough one. I think you know GSP striking was a little crisper, and that and GSP game planning, you know, maybe a little bit better. GSP was really good at you know kind of figuring out what your weakness was and how to attack that weakness. But GSP also got caught sometimes, Jim. You know, you look at the Matt Sarah fight. You know, he he had a couple losses where you know he he wasn't right there. And Usman is so consistent that I I think you know it's a really close fight and it could go either way. But I think you would have to say Kamaru Usman. I think Usman is just now coming into his prime. Um, you know, he's had some injuries that have hampered him a little bit, right? You know, for a while he wasn't kicking a lot because he had leg injuries. He's now got the full package. And I'll tell you what, um, you know, you saw that combination he threw to end the fight. What a combination that was. That looked like a pro boxing combination um, and puts uh, Masvidal out for the first time in Masvidal's legendary career. You know, I, I think you got to lean toward Usman. Uh, I, I'm a believer. And he said to me on camera before, which I think is uh, is accurate, you know, each generation in MMA tends to get better, and I think you know he's facing you know consistently good competition. I I, I think you got to give Usman the edge here. I think you're right, Kevin. Nothing against GS, GSP, who is one of the all-time greatest to ever do it, and certainly was at that time. But man, you're right that the sport evolves, the fighters evolve. Usman is getting better and better and better. I love Masvidal for all the reasons that I'm sure you like him as well. He's a great showman. He's great for the sport. He's extremely popular. He's electric. But, man, that knockout was spectacular. I mean, what did you make of that right hand, especially, quote, from a guy who doesn't strike that well? Yeah. I mean, it was just like, I mean, that's one of the best right hands, you know, that you've ever seen from a UFC fighter. I mean, you know, just 
the combination is true. The you know the hook that started it, and I I think you know you look at it and and, and you break it down. The hook wasn't man, uh, meant to uh, to land or damage. It was meant to kind of distract from the right hand, and everything he did kind of worked perfectly. And it was the perfect combination. He he set it up with the having being at the right distance so that he could pull that off. Uh, throws that hook, uh, takes the attention away just for that split second, and boom, and he lands that right hand. And he put all you, you saw how much he turned so that when when he went down, he was right there falling uh, toward Maswell to go on top of him. So, I mean, he put his entire body on it. He landed, you know, if you put an X on Maswell's chin, he hit the X. And it was just an incredible uh, finish. And, you know, give Masvidal full marks, I mean, to get up and to say what he said afterwards, you know, given the rivalry that existed between them. That was the first time he was ever stopped. And, you know, and he fought, you know, at 185. You know, this is a guy that for most of his career fought at 155. You know, he knocked out Darren Till at 185. So Masvidal is a tough guy with a, a great chin. And, you know, to go out cold like he did, that shows you, the, you know, the punch that Usman landed. Uh, I actually, Kevin, love the way Jorge handled himself after that fight. Number one, I have no idea how he got up. I have no idea how that man got up after taking that shot. But I love that he said afterwards, look, the guy's got my number, all right? He beat me fair and square. All the credit to him. I thought Jorge handled that. And I want to say one more thing about Masvidal. You can call this guy journeyman. You can look at his record. When you consider where he started fighting in the yep. streets of Miami, literally for the McDonald's dollar menu and to put him in, himself in the position he has, he's already won even if he got blown out. I think he's had an amazing run. Kevin, before you go, what do you make of the talk that Nick Diaz, Nick Diaz might actually fight for the first time in six years and he might come back? Can you see that happening? And if so, how so? How would that develop for him? Well, you know, Dana said that, you know, that they talked and that there, there was going to be a fight. I, I'm going to be skeptical of this. I think there's an obvious fight for Nick Diaz, and that's Masvidal. To me, that is the fight if you bring him back. Um, you know, the UFC doesn't like to give guys light touches, but Nick Diaz has been off six years. You know, he fought last in January of, uh, of 2015 against Anderson Silva. I, I just find it hard to believe that, you know, six and a half years later now, he's going to be able to come back. Um, and Nick has, you know, kind of, you know, toyed with it a couple times, and we've heard he might come back, and then he hasn't. I'll believe it when I see it, Jim. But I think if uh, if they make the fight, uh, if, if he does come back, and they're going to put him in uh, a fight with him and Masvidal, would just be off the hook. The trash talk alone would be worth the uh, the pay per view money. I mean, that would be really something to see, and I think it would be a really fun, uh, striking battle. Oh hell yes, I'm in for that. Sign me up. Sign me up. And then finally, Kevin, what do you make? What was it like? The vibe to you to see a packed arena the way we did in Jacksonville. How different did that affect the dynamic of the fighters? Who And you, you made a very good point. The fighters did an amazing job in recent months to fight without any fans in the stands. But what was it like to have a packed house? Yeah, Jim, I mean, I think that, you know, the first fight that uh, Leong, the Chinese fighter, I think, you know, she clearly showed what happened. She was affected by the crowd. I mean, she just stormed out. You know, the crowd went crazy when Bruce Bruce Buffer started the introduction. This guttural roar went up, and uh, the place was really, really, really into it. And I think it affected every one of the fighters the entire night. I mean, they just couldn't believe what they were seeing. And I, th- I thought, like in the opening fight, it was a tremendous fight, and Carnalosi uh, won the fight. But I thought that Leong uh, just went away from her game plan a little bit because she got so uh, emotional about the way the crowd was. And I thought... 
you know, people can, you know, we have the whole political debate of mask versus no mask and vaccine versus no vaccine and all that. And, you know, I guess we'll have to wait and see if there was any negative impact in terms of COVID from that, you know, what stands without masks in the stands. But from a competitive athletic standpoint, nothing better. This is a sport that was made to have fans in the stands. It's not a sport to be made in a television studio and watch on TV. This is one to have fans in the stands. And it was so much better what the fans, it wasn't even funny. Kevin Ioli joining us. Kevin, last thought, what do you make of the YouTuber getting in the house, Jake Paul? And the next thing you know, he and DC are in each other's faces. He's also taken a lot of runs at Dana. Like, what does Dana make of that? Is that a slight annoyance to him? Or is Dana going to have a real issue with this? And what did you make of DC and that YouTuber face-to-face? I, I thought DC made a mistake. I mean, don't give, don't give him too much credit, right? I mean, we know, you know, he's nowhere near the kind of fighter that DC is, right? He hasn't accomplished anything in his life, nor will he ever accomplish anything in his life close to what DC has done. Um, but he, you know, I mean, he's picking up on popularity that he gained from social media, and he's exploiting it. And you know what? I say God bless him. He's making a lot of money, and that's what he should do. And I, I think that's how Dana feels. Now, DC is, uh, is proud of his sport, and, and he wants to defend the sport that made him rich and famous, and I understand that. But I think, you know, you're playing into Jake Paul's hands by doing what D.C. did. And I think if Daniel had to think about it, he would probably do it over again and uh, do it differently if he had it to do over again. Wouldn't do that same thing, you know. But, hey, I give Jake Paul full marks. You know what? He's getting people to spend money at a time when a lot of people don't want to spend money on these kind of things. And um, God bless him. I mean, uh, I'm not sure what happened to Ben Askren. That totally, totally stunned me in that fight. I thought Askren would win it. Not that I thought Askren was a great striker, Jim, but I thought that he would outlast him and, and then eventually wear him down. But, you know, give Jake credit. You know what? He's, he's making a lot of money where he created an opportunity for himself where none existed, and you have to praise him for that. I think so, man. He's running his playbook, and he's running it pretty well, and he's getting over. He's getting over, and he's getting paid. And even Dana said that. Hey, look, you'll make a few bucks. It's not what I do, but you'll make a few bucks. Kevin Ioli is an MMA insider for Yahoo Sports. He covers boxing as well. Kevin, great to have you on. Thank you so much for breaking it down. As you and I both pointed out, that was a wild, wild fight card in Jacksonville. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate you, brother. Hey, are you craving some protein after a good workout? You know it. Don't make a shake. Don't eat a bar. Instead, grab a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper. Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty and tender, made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. And it goes with you wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. Make sure you look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. That way you can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. And if you don't see it, make sure to ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Oh, Trapper, what's your beef? Jake in Buffalo. Hey, Jake, what's going on? Romy, what is up? I'm, uh, I'm psyched to hear you talking some baseball today. And I know we're hitting Padres, but I got to talk about my Mets and Jacob deGrom because this guy is a freak. Just like me ordering wings for the bar at a yet-to-be-rescheduled Buffalo tour stop, he's bringing nothing but heat in 2021. DeGrom is throwing his four-seamer more often than Nika's giving out her digits in Cleveland this week, and he doesn't need another pitch because no one can hit it. But don't get it twisted, clone. He still has every tool in his arsenal. And speaking of tools, I want to touch on some of the more recent Golden Ticket winners. In his Golden Ticket call, CJ in the Bay took a run at clones for going after the XR4TI because it's easy and chased that with Matt in L.A. plumber smack. I mean... 
leave it to the Bay Area to take something that's already been done, repackage it, and sell it to the rest of America like they're some kind of original genius? Was that CJ getting choppered on Friday or Elon Musk? And in that regrettable call, CJ glossed himself inevitable. But the only thing that's inevitable is CJ being too baked at 9 a.m. to remember to call into the smack off. And then there's Chris in Southeast Wisco. This guy once said he had a weekly spot on your program, won a golden ticket, and he hasn't been heard from in months. Chris, take your tired, self-loathing, hate-the-state-I-live-in, wannabe Andy Rooney, repeat Jim takes to him, one-bedroom apartment having ass, back to whatever Midwest sewer you crawled out of. I don't want a golden ticket. I want your golden ticket. I want to end you, bro. Jake in Buffalo. All right, so he was on the watch list. Is it is that enough to get him off the watch list? No. Let's go to the ABQ. Rex. Well, hello, Rex. Hey, Jimmy. Um, regarding MMA, society is doing a massive disservice to these fighters. I mean, it's nothing more than human cockfighting. They might as well be strapping razor blades and pumping steroids into these guys. Look at the long-term results. We don't know what they are, but what it is going to be is CTE, massive tolls on their families, massive tolls on the sport. Also, Joe Rogan can make a funny face when someone lands a reverse wheel kick. The guy's making $100 million. I don't need to see his face anymore on TV. All right? Thanks. I'm out. All right, Rex. That's actually a pretty straight call for Rex. <laughs> 1-800-636-8686. Joe Rogan's funny face went viral because their reaction was unbelievable. You see, essentially, their reaction, I think, was similar to all of our reactions in our homes, but we don't have cameras on us, and they do there. So, like celebrities, right? Celebrities... In fact, when you get right down to it, they really are just like the rest of us. Except no. No, they're really not. They're celebrities. Celebrities are not like the rest of us because they can't be. Because we won't let them be. A celebrity cannot just walk into a coffee shop, as an example, order a latte, sleeve up, and then get out of there like we can. That person gets stared at. That person gets stopped. That person gets chatted up. That person gets to ask for autographs and selfies, and you regale them with some story. A five-minute errand turns into a 30-minute ordeal. And then if said celebrity is not like the happiest person in the world, and if they don't act like they're the most grateful person in the world, that you stop them and harass them, then they're on video coming off like an entitled asshat. And then their reputation is wrecked over one simple coffee run. So what do they do? They wear hats. They wear sunglasses. They pull hoodies over their heads. They go with disguises. And they use fake names instead of their real handles. Enter one Clayton Edward Kershaw, one of the most recognizable faces in the city of Los Angeles. Like, this guy's not going to just walk into a Starbucks with his trademark shaggy lettuce, towering above everybody at six foot four, and ordering a Pike Place roast to go and have the barista shout out his real name when the drink is ready. How would that go? Clayton Kershaw, 
Clayton Kershaw, order for Clayton Kershaw. Clayton Kershaw, number 22, for the World Series champion Dodgers, your pike is ready. That's not going to work. That can't happen. He'd be late to every single game he's running off to. According to the Dodgers broadcast, though, Friday night, we now find out his workaround. Clayton, he's got an alias when he orders his coffee. That alias is Tony Crenshaw. TC, my guy. I see you working. I really do. TC. All right, so in case you don't, let me explain it to you. Tony is Clayton without the first three letters, and then he just reorganizes the letters to get to the four, Tony. Crenshaw, however, has a much better backstory, a much funnier backstory. And no, it's not an homage to one of the most famous streets in L.A. It's actually an homage to one of the most viral Dodger fans telling the local news back in 2017 who her favorite player is. Check this out. Understand this about the clip. The clip is from some dude who recorded it right off their TV and then added his own live commentary. Normally, I avoid this type of audio, but it's the only version of the clip in known existence. And the guy who recorded it from his TV is actually pretty hilarious. Who's your favorite player right now? Crenshaw. Love him. <laughs> Crenshaw or Kershaw? One of those. I'm a little intoxicated. I don't know <laughs> their favorite player was Crenshaw. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of awesome in that. Listen again closely. In the first bit, you hear the newscaster asking this gal on the street during a Dodger World Series run, who's your favorite player? And this gal responds with, quote, Crenshaw. The newscaster is so low-key, so low-key and savage that she quickly corrects the gal with a super quick, Crenshaw or Kershaw? Who's your favorite player right now? Crenshaw. Love him. Crenshaw or Kershaw? One of those. Or Rickshaw. Or Coleslaw. Or Debrickishaw. I mean, this dude's recording his TV. Why he's recording the local news, I'm not really sure, but he is. And I'm glad he is because he's laughing his ass off. And that's money. This guy's all of us. He can't help himself. I mean, who can? I love this gal on the street's instant pivot when the newscaster jumps in with Crenshaw or Kershaw. The gal on the street goes with one of those. I'm a little intoxicated. Crenshaw or Kershaw? One of those. I'm a little intoxicated. Well played. When you're caught lying about being a Dodger fan, And you just called the most famous player who's been on that team longer than anybody, Crenshaw? Definitely blame the booze. But it's my man laughing as he records his TV that just ices that cake. Who's your favorite player right now? Crenshaw. Love him. Crenshaw or Kershaw? One of those. I'm a little intoxicated. (laughs) Their favorite player was Crenshaw. I love how this dude's like, not only laughing, he's resetting it audibly. This dude's like, (laughs) her favorite player is Crenshaw.
<laughs> Their favorite player was Crenshaw. <laughs> this dude thinks that's the funniest thing he's ever heard in his life, and it might be. Anyway, according to Reddit, and wouldn't they know, Kershaw has seen that clip, and that's what inspired him to go with the alias Tony Crenshaw. Good night now!